Uh, hello everyone, my name is Luke Thomas, today is April 6, 2015, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst. This is actually the second Monday Morning Analyst I've had to record today because the first one died, and I'm not kidding, at the very end in a way that I still couldn't edit the whole thing to fix it. So, I'm actually recording this again, but that's okay, that's how much I love you, that's how much I'm committed, one way or another to getting this damn podcast off the ground and to work. You know how this goes, 30 minutes or less, I'm going to try and get out of here uh, and cover the technical action from the weekend. There was a lot going on. I'll either get it in the post itself or get up to the podcast, time permitting. Some of the PBC on CBS stuff. I know Nathan Orchard lost to Eddie Cummings this past weekend as well. So um, to the extent that time permits, I'll get to it. But if not, check out the post on MMAfighting.com, which was, of course, where this will go. All right, 30 minutes on the clock. We're going to talk about UFC Fight 963 and a little bit of Glory 20 starting now. Okay, so... Quickly, big overview on this one. Uh, as you know, Fairfax was in, uh, you know, just outside my hometown. They call it D.C., but it's, trust me, from where I live, it's an hour and a half to get to Fairfax. Um, but in any event, it's the, it's the, you know, relatively speaking, it's the same market, more or less. Um, I think they pick it over the Verizon Center because it has a, you know, it only holds 8,000 or so. And so they don't have the same kind of responsibilities to sell tickets. If they go to the, Patriot, if they go to the Verizon Center, it's 20,000 plus. So you get the idea. All right, so there's that. But... What I want to sort of monitor in the sort of big overview moment here was I'd watched these Fox shows on TV at home, either from DVR or live, and I had complained previously about, um, you know, how they drag. And I was trying to understand why they drag, and I think I have an understanding now, which is that Bellator, when they, they can go long if they need for like a five-round main event, but they typically don't, or at least they try to get out of there really fast because the, either the lead-in or certainly the lead-out is often cops, which is high, super highly rated. You can say what you want about it, but it's highly rated. And so they have a different ad rates for those programs. If people are paying to be on at that time and they run over, you know, they owe those people those ad spots. So they have a, they have a premium on getting out of there. You know, they don't mind running over a little bit, but they got a premium on getting out of there pretty fast too. So, so that, that can be problematic for them. Um, but with Fox Sports 1... You know, NASCAR and UFC stuff is their highly, most highly rated stuff. I mean, I think they do some playoff baseball work, but typically speaking, they don't have an incentive to get off of UFC because that's when the viewers drop off. So that's why they have to keep it going as long as they do. Now, I don't know this to be true. I can't get a straight answer from anyone, but this is my guess. Um, and I think the other part that I, I was sort of really interested to see was, does that experience really affect me live? Now, in other words, it's one thing to have to deal with Dickie V and Stephen A. Smith yelling at each other forever when you're watching on TV at home, but if you're in the arena, do you really notice it? And you do. The fights themselves, I don't think quite lived up to the billing, although the fights were pretty good, and, and, and I have nothing to complain about as such. But when you have to space out your programming like that, and they do the best job that they can, given those considerations, it just doesn't allow any kind of momentum on the show. Um, and, you know, the co-main event was a great fight, the feature fight was a great fight, all the main car fights were really good, to be honest, but they didn't feel like he was building towards anything because everything was so spaced out. So I understand that Fox Sports 1 has an incentive to not worry about those things because the ratings are so important for their channel. But for the viewer, I'm going to just keep harping on this until someone listens because I just think it's really important. All right, with that out of the way, let's get on to the fights. UFC Fight Night 63 took place uh, at, the, as I mentioned before, the Patriot Center, which is on the campus of George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. The gate at, was 545,604. The attendance, 5,417. Fighter of the card. It's a close call between Juliana Pena and Chad Mendez. 
but I'm going to give it to Chad Mendez in this particular case, given the strength of the opposition. Uh, performance of the night bonuses went to Chad Mendez and Juliana Pena, as well as Dustin Poirier and Timothy Johnson. You guys had requested that I start from the top up, uh, excuse me, the top down, not bottom up, so that's what we're going to do. In the main event, Chad Mendez defeated Ricardo Lamas at 245 of the first round via TKO. Biggest takeaway for me here was the complete domination by Chad Mendez, and here's what I mean by that. Yes, there was a moment where Mendez was sort of bending over, uh, uh, biting on a feint, and almost hit an uppercut um, as he as he, as he he fainted, and it was a level-changing feint. But in the end, it uh, either connected partially or not enough to really matter. Um, so, so there was that one, you know, buzzing the tower kind of moment. But if you notice in that fight, he, the wrestling for him has become a back pocket issue. Not even a conduit. Uh, you know, his striking is not even a conduit for his wrestling. They're, they're, they bleed together when necessary and can be utterly distinct when they're necessary, too. It's really remarkable, the transformation in his game. But the, the ending sequence is what I want to talk about here. You had noticed that he had pushed Lamas, not physically, but sort of through footwork, back into the fence. And he got him to bite on a feint. He pawed with the jab, and then the two traded hooks, traded hooks a la Sergio Pettis and uh, Ryan Benoit, or um, or uh, Ross Pearson and uh, Sam Stout, or Hardy and Condit, right? You see these two guys trade hooks in the pocket. When that happens, it's usually just a gunslinging race about who's going to win. But there was a lot of advantages that Mendes had. First of all, his positioning was he was just on the inside of the outer foot of Len- of. of uh, Lamas. And Lamas was also kind of angled off of the fence. He didn't have a great angle. But here's how you know how well Mendez had done. When he fa- when he fainted with the jab, Lamas read it. Lamas saw the right hand of Mendez coming. like He knew it was coming on the pike, so he tried to race him with his own right hand. But what, what ended up happening was Mendez was in a better position. Mendez had started the punch earlier. Mendez got his head completely off center, so Lamas's right hand just buzzed the right ear of Mendez, and most importantly, the right hook of Mendez landed first before Lamas's right hook, or right straight anyway. As well as Lamas leaned into it, he leaned into the punch, so he got beat with speed. He got beat with the proactive offense of Mendez, and he got beat technically. He didn't move his head off the same center. In fact, I mean, not much. He kind of ducked into the punch, to be perfectly honest. And that was because he started late off the initiated, lazy but purposeful jab of Chad Mendez. Uh, so Chad beat him everywhere in that regard, and obviously followed up. And the, the stoppage was not the best, but I don't think it's that bad that he had looked to the ref to like, so do I really need to keep going on about this? Um, so I don't have too much of an issue with that. Great, great win by Chad Mendez. Uh, Al Iaquinta defeated Jorge Masvidal, 29-28 for Iaquinta, 30-27 for Masvidal, and then 29-28 for Al Iaquinta. You can look at a lot here, including the fight metric stats, which, um, you know, they can be misleading, not because fight metric does a bad job, just because a significant strike is just a strike landed at distance. It doesn't tell us if it's a, a jab that doesn't even water your eyes or, you know, it's a clean knockout punch. It can be anything in between. So it doesn't really tell us a lot, but even with that consideration in mind, all nine takedowns of Iaquinta stuffed handily, I might add. Um, In addition, he was outstruck at least from a volume standpoint in all three rounds. What I will say is a couple of things. Number one, I think folks who have highlighted that there's a judging issue have have a point. It's also bizarre that Doug Crosby, who has an issue with Sarah Longo... Called the fight 30-27 for Masvidal, although that's also, weirdly, the most defensible scorecard. So there's that problem as well. Um, 
people have noted that this is just a problem with the 10-9 must system, that you can make a case 29-28 Iaquinta all the way to 30-26 Masvidal. I'm not as sympathetic to that argument, but I, I also think it has some merit worth acknowledging here. Um, but really, to me, the major takeaway was this, and I said it on 120 Sports, and I'll say it here. The, the reality for me is Jorge Masvidal is just way too good to be letting fights be this competitive. We all know he won the first round. He, he knocked Iaquinta down twice and landed fantastic ground and pound and even got it was credited with a guard pass there by fight metric. Uh, easily his round. And as some had mentioned, arguably even 10-8. Um, but he he certainly took his foot off the gas. You could say, well, if he outstruck Iaquinta, how do you know he took his foot off the gas? Well, because he didn't finish him, right? Um, to me... Watching that first round, not that I don't believe in the ability of Iquinta to make adjustments, but if you're telling me that was peak Masvidal in round two and peak Masvidal in round three, I, I just don't believe you. I don't believe that was maximum effort from him. I think he knew he had it in the bag. I don't think he felt particularly threatened, and he didn't need to feel particularly threatened because he was not getting hurt. Iquinta in that third round, if you wanted to give him the third round, I wouldn't be the most upset with you, even though, even though I don't think that's still justified. But what I would say is in that third round, he did land some hard leg kicks, and he also landed some really hard right hands that rocked Masvidal's head back. You know, not rocked his consciousness, but certainly um, he landed with authority. The best punches of those round from either guy, you know. So uh, I wouldn't be too upset with that. But he handily lost the second round. Um, but even so, he handily lost in a way where, look, anytime someone is judging be it a judge in a court, dancing with the stars, a mixed martial arts fight. Anytime a judge of human behavior is involved, performance art plays a role. And I think that pushing forward, even on stuff takedowns, and throwing strikes, even if you're, you know, they're wild and they miss, just looking like the aggressor, quote-unquote, can win you fights. We've seen it before. It's not an accident. Even with judges who are well-intentioned and not corrupt and, and maybe even ordinarily pretty good, um, it's, just, it's just a reality of the human experience. So I think that's what came into play here. But, you know, as bad as I feel for Jorge Masvidal, you know, this I, I can only hope this is a wake-up call for him. Because he's 30 years old. He can fight his ass off. He does. I mean, no one walked out of that fight and was like, well, Iaquinta's the better fighter. I mean, no one said that. No one. It's not possible to say that. Jorge Masvidal does everything excellently. He can strike from the outside. He can wrestle defensively and offensively. He can guard pass. He has submissions from the guard. Um, he can take a shot. Um, he can do everything. He can do everything well. But the problem is, he went into this fight. I saw from him on Thursday, saying, "Well, he, you know, would I really gain if I win this? I'm supposed to win it." And you know, and I asked him, you know, would you want to be a part of like Latin American UFC stuff, including the Ultimate Fighter? He said yes. I mean, how many guys want, are like would love to be a a, a coach in the Ultimate Fighter? You know, most of these guys are like, oh, I took a year out or whatever, how long out of my career, I don't want to do that. Not Masvidal. The guy is 30. It's now or never for him. He's way too talented to let fighters who are not as good as him keep him in fights this close. He needs to get out there, and I'm not saying he has to go in and fight risky, but I would like to make him see some adjustments where he's fighting with some urgency. Fighting that if he knows he doesn't do this, it's over for him. And I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying he's so good at everything except having the kind of urgency in his fights that he needs to. Because previously, he'd come out slow, and this time he didn't. He came out looking so sharp, and then he took his foot off the gas. It always feels like Masvidal is either digging himself out of a hole or letting a lead slip. And I would just like to see him get out in front and stay out in front and put guys away that he is so good at putting away. Get out there and do it because he has that ability. 
He truly, truly does. And being a, a, a Latino uh, fighter and speaking Spanish fluently, that's his first language. There are so many commercial opportunities available for you. If you're not getting out there and doing it, man, you are just doing yourself a disservice. Yes, the decision was unfair, and yes, I think he won, and I will argue that with anyone. But I would also say that there is just a fact of the matter was Masvidal didn't do as much as he could have in the second and third without necessarily upping the, the risk, and he kept the fight way closer than he had to, and it bit him in the ass. And I feel bad about it. I really do. I don't think it's fair. But I also don't think he's being fair to himself by fighting like this. Get out there. And you're better than these guys. Put them away or make the lead so great that there's they, they, they couldn't possibly take it away from you. All right, moving on. Um, let's see. Michael Chiesa defeated Mitch Clark via unanimous decision, 29-28 on two judges' scorecards, and then 29-26. Not a lot to say about this one. Um, Chiesa decided to strike it out in the third, and, and it kind of kept it close in that regard. But first two rounds... Um, basically, was there was the clinch where he was winning, even from 50-50 position, was able to get hit to hip to hip and then land throws, either to go to knee on belly or take the back into transition. From there, had a body triangle and it looked pretty good along the way. Juliana Pena returned to action, defeating Milana Dudieva uh, at 3:59 of the first round. Uh, Dudieva came out and tried to take her down with like basically this hip lift, where you get you know uh, a gable grip behind her hips, pick them up, and then try to uh, turn them and dump them and. Uh, Pena was able to use her leg, the near side leg, to balance. Couldn't believe it. Stop the takedown and then balance and then reorient herself. Incredible. I would say I didn't like that Pena had come charging out. Somebody, you know, ramrod straight. Somebody who's really a striker is just going to crack her for that. But once she locks up with someone, she's got all kinds of different answers. She had been taken down, uh, I think, a second time, or at least maybe the first time, in that round. And where what uh, Rousey calls the Juji squish. Um, you know, counter. If someone tries to stack you on an armbar attempt when she was going for one, you basically just come out the side. And she didn't get to finish the armbar from that way, but she was able to get back to her base and scramble. So a lot from there. Obviously, eventually getting the takedown, moving to mount with like no effort at all. Pena much better at control positions, uh, and then pounded her out with like Kazushi Sakuraba double Mongolian chops on top. One thing to note, Dudieva is really strong and a decent fighter, I suppose, but she's you can see the difference between a gimmicky grappler and a, and a real grappler, right? Which is to say, um, Dudieva has some ability, but she goes for these low percentage things that just aren't there. And they're high risk, high reward, and those work on people who aren't very good. But against people who are, it's a disaster. It's like it's like a it's it's an immediate turn to the to the very bad out of nowhere. So, um Pena, you can see, really respects the, you know, why side control is important, how to keep Mount. She did the old um, Rico Rodriguez, Yoshi Kosaka bit from Mount where she crosses her own ankles underneath so Dudieva couldn't even turn. It was bad, man. Uh, Clay Guida defeated Robbie Peralta in the way that Clay Guida knows how, taking 30-27 across all three judges' scorecards. Not a whole lot there to talk about. Dustin Poirier. Love this fight. Returned to lightweight. Defeated Carlos Diego Ferreira at 345 of the first round. Uh, he looked fantastic. He looked really, really fantastic. So, uh, a lot of things about this. I thought his movement looked good. He looked huge um, for lightweight. He must have been an enormous featherweight, but obviously it wasn't his uh, wasn't to be after the McGregor loss. But um, what stood out to me was a couple of things. One, I would say that um, Fajeda had a really nice takedown attempt. He did it with an arm drag, and they did an arm drag bit where you drag the arm you know, forward, and then you basically use that same side leg to dive in underneath and then get up behind them. 
So you're diving in between their legs. You know, your legs are split. One leg is in between theirs. One leg is on the outside of theirs. And you wrap the inside leg. But then you, as soon as you dive and slide, you come right back out the other side and you stand. And you've already thrown them forward, so they're off balance. And you can finish the single from there. You can take the back, depending on what they do. Uh, and what's funny about this is I don't even know the name of this takedown. It's just an arm drag to a slide, slide to get up and behind them. Okay? There's all kinds of things you can do from there. But what's funny is that I was practicing these last week. Last week I was practicing these. I'm not very good at it, but um, it's just funny. Fajera hits the arm drag. And Poirier, recognizing that it's too late to back out of the arm drag, just goes with it and then does a forward roll. Like, to have the presence of mind to do the forward roll off the arm drag by Dustin Poirier was just, it's like, it just reminds you, like, pro fighters are just so hard to do anything against. It's amazing. It was a totally, totally amazing moment. Maybe folks didn't appreciate it or care, but I saw it. I thought it was crazy. Um, so there's that. Um, but... The, the interesting point to me about this fight was um, it wasn't the jab of Party. Party was going to get countered a little bit off the jab. It was actually the left straight that was um, hurting Fajera. And that's was setting up everything else. He would crack him and then throw another two punches behind it, maybe. And that's how he was able to hurt Fajera. Um, I was kind of really impressed by that. Some of the movement, some of the patience. Just finding the open moment where... You know, Fajardo was just trying to overwhelm him with volume, pushing forward, throwing a bunch of strikes. And when he was sort of going back and forward with him a little bit there, he was getting tagged. Not badly, but enough where even while he was still winning, it was like, this isn't as comfortable as it should be. But when he was angling off and then firing the left straight, uh, he had him in all kinds of trouble. Knocked him down once, uh, and then he followed him to the ground. Almost got hit with a underhook sweep um, by uh, Poirier excuse me, by Fajera, um, from half guard, but was able to, uh, you know, execute um, or establish his base and then drag himself back out. So that was that. But short of that, it was just, you know, that left hand that set everything up the whole the whole time. Real quick, by the way, I forgot to mention on the Guida versus Peralta fight, um, there was a one point where Guida was in his guard or half guard. Peralta went for a Kimura, missed the Kimura, and Guida then tried to lock up the head and arm triangle. And the way you want to look at that is the head that's wrapped, the arm that's wrapping around their head, you want to make sure their elbow is on the ground. Because the more that's up, I mean, Brock Lesnar got away with it against Shane Carwin but from squeezing, but, you know, generally speaking, you want that elbow on the ground. He had that, plus he had that power grip, the, the bicep grip on the other side. It doesn't get much deeper than that. I'm not exactly sure what the mechanics of that went wrong. Sometimes you're supposed to bring your chest over it to finish, or you're supposed to angle off. And maybe he didn't do that, but uh, a pretty amazing uh, submission defense by Robbie Peralta there. Sorry about that. So that's your main card. Um, quickly, we can touch on just a couple of things here on this preliminary card. Uh, Liz Carmouche defeated Lauren Murphy. Uh, didn't think it was the world's best decision. Didn't think it was the worst. Not not a great fight. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of attention on it. Uh, I will, however, talk about Alexander Yakovlev defeating Gray Maynard. 30-27, 29-28, and 30-27. This fight looked different in video than it did in person. In person, it looked a lot more... Like Maynard was having a hard time. Looked a little bit closer on video on, on video for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, Yakovlev dropping down to lightweight looked great, given the kind of the you know, level of fighter that he is. Um, but um, um, I'm trying to think like how would I describe what he did well? He was always fighting for underhooks, and so Maynard had a problem there. 
He uh, was always good about posting an elbow or a hand to never go back down on the map, you know? If you're always at an angle, if you're always turned on your side, if you're always kind of posting a hand, if you're always kind of getting your hips back and up, if you're always widening your base against the cage, you know, you're going to be harder to take down. That's more work that they have to do. It's when you get turned flat on your back, that's when you've got a lot of problems. Uh, even when you have, even when you're, you know, playing full guard, you kind of want to be crunched a little bit. You don't want to be, your shoulder blades flat on the back. It's hard to get your hips up that way, so... You know, there's a lot of things you got to be doing the right way to, to, to make things happen for you. Um, so that was good. You know, I also thought his scrambling there was a little delayed, but, you know, he, he was just winning positionally at the very moments that he needed to. Um, but what really sort of struck me about this was how similar Gray Maynard felt and looked like Josh Koscheck. Coming out early, landing a couple of hard right hands, um, you know, uh, fainting side to side, then popping him with a, a shot to the body. That, that, that looked good by Gray Maynard. Moving side to side. Getting Yakovlev to react and then throwing a right over the top, that worked well. But once Yakovlev was able to adjust, that was it. And once Yakovlev was, he was stopping takedowns in the first round too, but uh, I have the fight metric data here. I'm trying to see exactly how well he did it. But um, even after he stopped the takedowns in, uh, or whatever was left of the takedowns in the first round, um, you know, he had a lot of trouble after that. In fact, the third round, he was taken down. It was actually. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember, was it, was it, you know, he missed the ankle pick in the third round, Yakovlev did. Um, uh, oh, he got uh, Maynard to commit on a left, ducked under it and grabbed the single leg, picked it up and then kicked out the post leg. That's what he did. Um, so let's see here, yeah, uh, yeah, oh, amazing, wow. Um, takedowns, Maynard was 0 for 4 in the first round, One was credited with 1 in the second and 1 in the third. However, in the third Yakovlev was credited with one towards the end, and then Yakovlev got one in the first round as well. I think that was, um, he stormed right out of the gate and hit the takedown. And then as you, you got, saw the knockdown in the second round, I believe, just cracked him straight down the pipe, bang, got him looking in open space, and dropped him. It was just, it just remarked, it just reminded me so much of Josh Koscheck, where you start strong, you got your go-to weapons, and then once they get adjusted around, there's no other gear to adjust to. I didn't think his speed looked great, but I didn't think it looked horrible either. Um, certainly, certainly a decline from there. His strength is probably what it always was, but he just didn't seem to have the same just rough and tumble aggressiveness in the third. I don't know if it was a cardio issue or not. Yukovla was making it hard. Those long, lanky guys, they can really make you, you know... When they fight your underhook, you feel like you're there, but you're not really there. So you use a ton of muscles because you think, well, this guy's not as physically strong as me. But they've got these leverage points with the way their body is built that really makes it hard to get around. So I wonder if that's what that was. Uh, Timothy Johnson defeated Shamil Abdurrakimov. I can't remember pronounce this guy's name properly. At 457 of the first round. Not, not a lot to say about this one, except the ending was kind of interesting. Uh, Johnson picks him up on a single leg dump. And then when he gets to the ground, he's in the half guard of Abdur Rakhimov. And um, there's an interesting bit where he tries to, like, uh, he, does, he doesn't do a back step out of it, but he sort of slides his hips to open the guard or the half guard. And Abdur Rakhimov does not go for a knee shield. He just leaves it open. So, so in other words, um, Johnson rotates counterclockwise and then moves into mount clockwise, creates the space, and then fills it. Pretty awesome job by Timothy Johnson. And from there, that dude is enormous. There, there was no way you were going to get him off of you. Um, and now he got a first win and had a great mustache. And then opening the show, Ron Stallings defeated Justin Jones. 29-28, 29-28, and 
Uh, I don't have any issues with either of those scorecards. I didn't examine this too much in the in the second go round. Stallings looking good from the outside. Uh, great head movement, great trunk movement. Only issues for him were he was getting held against the fence and really wasn't either able or willing to circle out. That's definitely going to be something he wants to work on. I mean, it didn't cost him here necessarily, but um, it could have against someone a little bit better. You never know. It's just not a place you want to be. It's not where he was doing his best work. It's not what was awesome for him. Um, you know, I think Justin got a, Jones got a couple of takedowns, especially in that first round. But once Stalin was able to get his base wide and his feet apart, there was not much that Justin Jones could do at that point. So it's just another, another reminder of how good takedown defense is against the cage for all levels of MMA. You know, Ron Stallings is a guy in the UFC because he filled in on short notice and was competing in regional shows. And now he's here and he gets a win. And it just shows you, like, even for guys who get called up from the regional show who are in their early to mid-30s, their takedown defense along the cage is pretty remarkable like that you're just gonna have a very hard time it's that open space takedown that's really gonna matter or you know what you did you know picking it up and then kicking out the post like it's got nothing to do with the fence nothing to do with it i'm not saying you can't do that but like a guy like Yakovlev, if he's able to just dig an underhook and pull you know your elbow up and away from you um and not let you get your hands together he's not a great wrestler but it's just such an easy mechanical thing for him that um you know, it just shows you how hard it is now to take someone down against the cage. What you can really surprise them with are the takedowns in the center, uh, which Jones, against Stallings, simply did not have. Um, and, of course, I think Stallings will get better at finishing someone at range if he gets a little more work, but um, sort of had the same combination finishes to go to, but nevertheless looked, looked pretty good, um, especially, uh, you know, when he had him hurt in that first round. I thought it looked pretty awesome doing that. Uh, okay, so the fighter of the card... I'm going to say is a close tie between, maybe not a tie, but a close race between Pena and Mendez. I'm going to give it to Mendez, given the strength of the opposition, but I thought that Pena had a lot of interesting tricks that are worth going back and reviewing if you get a chance. Uh, real quickly, Glory 20 Dubai was held. Uh, just a couple of results, and I'll talk about the main event. Simon Marcus wound up winning the middleweight contender tournament. Remember, he lost the major middleweight tournament, the last man standing tournament, getting bludgeoned by Joe Schilling, but had a nice run against Jason Wilness, who was out of gas after this one, um, and then defeating Wayne Barrett. Wayne Barrett just did not look like himself in this one. Uh, also surprised that Alex Pereira didn't do as well as he did. Wilness has had a bit of a resurgence uh, after a tough run, I have to say, um, in, this in, in, in glory. Uh, Gabriel Varga defeated Mossab Amrani. Great fight. Good job by him. He wins the. He is now the glory featherweight champion. And uh, okay, so that leaves us the main event. And this was in Dubai. I did not go. It also and this was Dubai at the Dubai World Trade Center. I don't know what happened, but it looked like there was nobody there. Um. Yeah, and Morad Bouzidi defeated Dustin Jacoby. Man, he is having a tough run in glory. Mm. Uh, oh wow! And then Salo Cavallari defeated Artem Vakitov. I have. I need to see that one. That's crazy. Wow. Very unexpected. Um, and Max Bomert lost, too. Crazy. By KO, no less. Uh, all right. Be that as it may. Main event, Robin Van Roosmalen defeated Andy Risty for the lightweight championship. As you know, these two guys have fought uh, a number of occasions, not least of which they fought at Glory 12 in, uh, let's say, I want to say December. No, November of 2013. And Risty stopped him in the second round. Um, you know, the, rather easily. That was the night he also beat, by the way, um, Georgia Petrosian. So that was like the night of his life. 
Didn't have him for him this time, though. Boy, I have to say, uh, this might be the best that Van Roosmalen looked because Van Roosmalen sort of is who he is. He's got a real Dutch style. He's got a you know a tight guard up front. Comes forward, heavy leg kicks, throws heavy hooks. You know what I mean? It's real. He's just classic Dutch style. Um, just beat you down with pressure. Beat you down with heavy punching and kicking. Um, not a lot of finesse and movement and angles. So he's just really kind of forward in that regard. And in the first round, I thought Risty was doing well. Risty was switching stances and using different kind of front leg um, kicks. Uh, not on Risty's leg kicks, but using front leg, front, you know, just to push, to keep distance. Teeps, in other words. And he was using with either leg, switching back and forth. But what was kind of weird was that, like, he eventually just stopped. And he had a jab going, too, in the first round. But eventually just kind of just gave up on distancing himself. And what did Rusmalen do? He covered up so he could find a way to get inside. Would throw a leg kick, uh, a, a, a rib roaster. And when they break, he would angle off and then throw a left or a right over the top depending which way they broke and was just lighting up Risty the longer it went like Risty had no ability to get him off of him and here's the funny part it you know you would think a style like that would happen if one guy was pressed against the ropes no it happened in open space I couldn't believe it I don't know what happened to some of these guys I don't know if it was jet lag or 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 what I I don't I don't know but Risty just never taking the kind of distancing seriously. Also, you know, great defense by Van Roosman. Risty was kind of headhunting a little bit. I mean, yes, he was kicking the legs, but he wasn't going to the body. He would go to the uppercut if he was in tight. He would go to the front uppercut. He never really went to the rear uppercut. So it was just to get him to raise the head, then come over with a hook. But Roosman's guard was too tight to let it happen, you know. So he was constantly being able to cover up. Um, it was crazy. It was crazy. So eventually, by the by the fourth and fifth round, Van Roosman was unloading on him with comedy hard hooks he was hitting him with rocking him back he looked like he was on i mean skates in that fifth round Risty did really strong performance by robin van roosman so he's your glory lightweight champion i'm not exactly sure what's next for him um but i can tell you man like after defeating uh david Kiria in glory 18 and now glory 20 defeating andy Risty, you know he's got some some work to do to maybe beat all the, he still has, he still needs to beat Georgia Petrosian and, um, you know, to avenge one of his more recent losses. But, uh, man, uh, impressive, impressive performance by him. I liked it because he just knew what he was good at and stuck to it. Um, and, and just found a way around, you know, when Risty can't open you up and can't really hurt you at distance, he'll come inside. And then when he comes inside, bang, Van Roosmalen was on him like white on rice, man. Um, so, fighter of that card has to be Rusmalen. Although I will say I was very surprised at what Simon Marcus was able to do. I did not expect him to win that tournament at all. I thought Wayne Barrett was the prohibitive favorite, and of course uh, Gabriel Varga uh, doing a great job against Mosab Amrani, who's a very credentialed fighter himself. And so the next glory will be Glory Twenty One in San Diego. I believe that's on May eighth. I do not know if I'm going to that or not. And by the way, uh, because he won, Simon Marcus will face Artem Levin at that event. Uh, okay, so we need to get out of here because we ran out of time. In the post, I will put up stuff about... I'll put up the Eddie Cummings, uh, Nathan Orchard bit. I'll put up uh, some of the boxing results from PBC on CBS. There you go. You can hear the timer, just like that. So, with all that being said, I will call it a day. You can follow me on our uh, Twitter, at Thomas. Email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. And then uh, get at me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sports. Sorry for the production. I'm working on it. I know it doesn't seem like I am, but trust me, I am. Until next time, guys, enjoy the fights.